It was May 2017 when Gary Parker first got involved with Timothy Foster's case. Parker's the lawyer we heard from in episode one. He's worked in death penalty law since the 80s and tackled nearly 40 cases. He also helped launch the Georgia Capitol Defender Office in 2003. Parker's developed quite the reputation by now. Younger attorneys often call him for help. You ever seen the, the karate movies with the old master with the long gray beard? That's what I do. I inspire young people that they come to me because they know there's not a situation that they're facing that I have not dealt with. That's exactly what happened in Foster's case. Shayla Galloway, one of Foster's attorneys, asked Parker to join the team. She wanted Parker's help rebuilding trust with Foster after years of frustrations and setbacks. If you get a client like Tim Foster, who sat on death row for 30 years, he goes there at age 19, he sits there for 30 years, the U.S. Supreme Court says, you're going to get a new trial. And during the course of that 30 years, he's dealt with all kinds of attorneys. And there's generally, there are breakdowns and conflicts with lawyers along the way. Clients get in a state of mind, lawyers are busy and whatever else. And so oftentimes I was called to kind of, okay, Gary, we need somebody to go and convince this guy that taking a deal is in his best interest. Parker was technically retired at the time, but he agreed to help with one more case. Parker recalls meeting Foster for the first time. Ironically, <laughs> he knew of me. I didn't know of him. He knew of me from the several people on death row that I had dealt with. And, and quite frankly, it was kind of funny. He, when I first met him, he says, you're Gary Parker. He says, man, I thought you were white. I heard so much about you. <laughs> I said, I got white blood in me. I said, but no, I'm an African-American. Parker knew he would need Foster's trust in the fight about to begin. Foster was being tried for murder once again after 30 years on death row. But Georgia law and public opinion had shifted since the 80s. Now prosecution and defense alike face the looming question. What should justice look like in a case so drawn out and difficult? I'm your host, Grace Snell, and this is episode four of Georgia v. Foster. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Georgia v. Foster, a podcast investigating the struggle for justice when the stakes are highest, the death penalty. Our legal system stands on the idea that justice should be blind. But is it really? Who lives? Who dies? Who decides? On this show, we're unpacking the case of Timothy Tyrone Foster, a black man sentenced to death for murder by an all-white jury in 1987. Striking a plea deal out of court was the defense team's top priority. Foster had an A-team defending him, but Parker says his case still wasn't one they wanted to take to trial. 30 years hadn't changed the facts of the case. You know, the whole hope from the very beginning with Foster was to get Foster's case worked out because the evidence was going to be there to convict him. We felt there's going to be enough evidence that the jury was going to say, oh, yeah, the kind of direct and circumstantial evidence was this. He was going to be convicted. And because as a post-conviction relief from his first conviction, he had raised intellectual disability and he lost. So raising a second time was going to be an added challenge to convince jurors. Parker says the community of Rome was stunned by the case's reversal. Grief and outrage over Queen White's brutal murder still ran deep. The Rome News Tribune covered stages of the case's return. 
hear some Facebook comments on their stories that give a flavor of the community reaction. One woman wrote, Mrs. White was my third grade teacher and I loved her. She was so nice to me and all her students. That man knew exactly what he was doing and needs to go back to prison, away from other people. Another wrote, this is crazy. He was tried and convicted in 1987. He should have gotten his death sentence in 1987 or 88. Why keep him alive 30 years? One comment simply read, fry him. Parker acknowledges these grievances, but says for him, it's primarily an issue of due process. I'm sitting here. My responsibility is to advocate for my client, and I don't wave on that at all. But I got enough sensitivity and compassion to me to turn and look at the survivors and to recognize that that could have been my grandma, that could have been my mama in cases, that could have been my daughter, my sister, my brother, that could have been my child. But one of the things in training lawyers, I, I go back in training lawyers and say, you do understand this, that our responsibility is to ensure a fair process. If there is a fair process, whatever the verdict is, that's not on us. On the other hand, prosecutors have to consider what's fair to the victim's family. What outcome would provide most closure after 30 years of grief? I can't say for certain why Patterson decided to pursue the death penalty again. That's because she declined multiple interview requests. But she did outline her legal reasoning in the death notice submitted in 2017. Prosecutors can't pursue the death penalty for just anyone. Crimes have to meet certain criteria before the death penalty becomes an option. Here are the statutory factors Patterson cites in Foster's case. 1. The murder was committed while the offender was engaged in the commission of a burglary. 2. The murder was committed for the purpose of receiving money or other things of value. 3. The murder was outrageously or wantonly vile, horrible, or inhuman in that it involved torture to the victim. 4. The murder was outrageously or wantonly vile, horrible, or inhuman in that it involved depravity of mind on the part of the defendant. 5. The murder was outrageously or wantonly vile, horrible, or inhuman in that it involved an aggravated battery to the victim. These statutory factors provide adequate legal justifications to seek the death penalty. But Christina Joseph, the mitigation specialist who worked on Foster's case, points out that the death penalty is also political. Because we want to say that the criminal justice system is about justice and righteousness and all of this jazz, and it's political. It's it's political. Every aspect, every part of it, from the defender system, from the prosecutorial system, from the judges, from all this kind of stuff, if they are elected or appointed, it's political. District attorneys are elected officials, and it's often in their best interest to appear tough on crime. A lot of people want to do policies and do things because they think it's tough on crime or they think it's better, but is it really better? Is it really tough? Is it really a deterrent? Is it really doing what you think it's going to do? And a lot of times it's not. Joseph says prosecutors have a distinct power advantage. They decide how to prosecute. They decide whether to seek death. They decide whether to negotiate. They decide all, no one can make them do it. No, no one. It's all on them. They can be losing every single case, but will still act like they're winning 
and wasting taxpayers' money. Like, no one. And the only way they are stopped is being voted out, but because they're going hard on everything, they look like they're tough on crime. Joseph encourages people to think about where the money goes in their counties. Who's spending the taxes? Where are those taxes going? And where could they be going? Death penalty trials are the most expensive type of murder trials. Joseph says they actually cost far more than housing an inmate for life. Your county tax money is being spent on his prosecution, and your state tax money is being spent on his defense. So, you know, who loses here? The taxpayer. Joseph spent a lot of time in Rome, visiting churches and schools, to find out how people viewed the case. It was her job to get a pulse on the community and brainstorm strategies to win people over. She says lots of people were surprised to learn Patterson was pursuing the death penalty again. I would just talk to people in the school system and they would be like, women, what, what are we doing? But why? <laughs> like they, like they were, a lot of people were just baffled. Like, why? This case is how long? And he spent how many years on death row? Joseph asked people the best strategies to appeal to Patterson. She says the defense team came in trying to have a conversation from the jump in 2017. But Patterson didn't seem interested in negotiating. Joseph says most people she talked to said Patterson's just stubborn. They told Joseph she likely wouldn't find a way to appeal to Patterson. But John Bailey, editor of the Rome News Tribune, explains another reason behind this legal move, the disparity between 1980s death penalty law and laws in 2022. Since Foster's crime happened in 1987, Patterson and her team could only pick from the sentencing options available in the 1980s. That means they could only pursue life or death. Nothing in between. Failing to pursue a death sentence would give Foster automatic life. And that meant he would come up for parole. I think you had that catch-22 position situation that we talked about um, earlier where, if say, if they don't pursue the death penalty again, and then that's an automatic life. Right. Or they just go for the conviction and at any point in time uh, say, OK, we're going to just give you uh, murder, murder, plead guilty. We're done. We're out. But if Patterson was planning to plead the case, she was certainly taking her time. Both sides started gearing up for trial. The judge set the trial date for May 5th, 2022, at 9 a.m. Joseph knew Foster's defense team would have to be creative this time around. That's because most of the issues had already been raised and settled at previous stages of the case. For the Georgia Capitol defenders, a key part of their strategy was swamping the court with motions. If you're doing a death penalty case and you know what you're doing, you raid, you throw everything, including the kitchen sink and grandma at them to make a record. That's what you do. Together, both parties filed over 200 motions. Some of these motions were standard like requesting the defendant not appear in handcuffs, or asking the judge to declare the death penalty cruel and unusual punishment. Others were more specific to Foster's case. One of the biggest issues at stake was the question of intellectual disability. Georgia had become the first state to ban execution of intellectually disabled individuals in 1988. That was the year after Foster's sentence. Later, a hearing in the 90s found Foster, quote, not mentally retarded. That meant he wasn't exempt from the death penalty under Georgia's guilty but mentally retarded statute. But legal definitions of intellectual disability are hard to pin down and harder to prove. Sometimes the legal world does not 
equally coincide with the mental health world, right? So the standard is lower in the mental health world because most of the time we're just trying to get folks services that they need, right? So the standard is going to be a little bit lower. When Georgia first passed the GBMR statute, intellectual disability standards depended on IQ scores. Joseph says a defendant needed an IQ score of 68 or lower to qualify for protection. A Rome News Tribune article on Foster's 1999 hearing reports Foster's score as 71, indicating only mild mental retardation. However, Joseph says IQ scores aren't a reliable assessment method. Scores fluctuate, and Joseph argues they discriminate against students whose teachers didn't have the motivation or resources to test them. Joseph says legal standards of intellectual disability now rely on deficits rather than test scores. But the Floyd County judge denied Foster's motion to reopen the intellectual disability issue. So Foster's defense team had to get creative. Our argument was that, no, he may not be ID, but there was still something going on. To support this argument, Foster's defense team brought in a clinical psychologist. She basically just showed like what it looks like and what a, what a person with ID would look like. And we used his records to say, okay, if this is what a person with ID looks like, this is how Mr. Foster fits into those categories. Joseph also interviewed community members alive in the 80s to speak to living conditions during Foster's childhood. We got somebody to testify who actually testified in his first case that was a social worker who worked with troubled youth in Floyd County. So she testified to what resources that were there, what, you know, what he could have done, what, you know, what, what should have been done to prevent certain things or, or what services he should have received, all these things that he did not receive because he was growing up poor, number one, then black in an area that's known for um, racism um, at that time. Joseph talked to a teacher who worked in the segregated school system. She also interviewed locals active in Rome's civil rights movement. This was um, pertinent to Mr. Foster, because this was during his lifetime, because the case is so old. People forget that this stuff didn't happen. Um, A lot of this stuff didn't happen 200 years ago. It just happened, you know, 50, 100 years ago. Like, people don't realize um, that people that were marching and trying to get the bare minimum are still alive. These people didn't have a direct impact on Mr. Foster's life. These things were going around during his lifetime, right? So if you're coming from an environment where people had to fight to exist, then that's going to affect your psyche and how you go through the world. None of those arguments swayed Patterson, though. She continued to resist defense efforts to strike a deal. Joseph points this out as another instance of prosecutorial power. If they're not willing to talk, if they're not willing to negotiate, they don't have to. They don't have to answer our phone call. They don't have to do anything. Then, five years into negotiations, everything changed. Patterson reached out in February 2022 with a take-it-or-leave-it offer. That and more next time on Georgia v. Foster. 
Georgia V. Foster is reported and hosted by Grace Snell. This episode is produced by Anna Rich. Music courtesy of Pixabay.com. For more episodes, head to VikingFusion.com or find us on Spotify. Thanks for listening.